This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. This morning we're going to look into the book of Daniel, so you might open to Daniel chapter 7 and uh, put on your track shoes because, because of our time limitations, we're going to race through this chapter so you're going to have to listen very carefully. You know, we probably all had the sensation of being in a cold sweat with pulse racing, heart pounding, adrenaline flowing, and feeling like somebody's chasing us or falling off a cliff. And just before we kind of have that catastrophic end, we wake up and we find ourselves really in a soft bed and we realize it was only a dream. Just a scary dream. Well, dreams can have that kind of effect, and what we're going to see in Daniel chapter 7 is a scary dream that the prophet Daniel had, except his, unlike ours, is not a fictitious dream. It's fictitious in the imagery, but not in the realism of what it teaches, and that's what we want to see today. So what I'd like you to do is take Daniel 7 and follow with me, because there's a lot of imagery here, and I'm going to have to expand your mind as we read through these verses And think about these beasts that are coming up out of the sea and remember their characteristics and how they end when the Ancient of Days comes who's God and suddenly the Son of Man appears. I want you to feel all of that imagery as Daniel is in this night vision. He's having this incredible dream on his bed. In verse 1 it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The great sea oftentimes is used in Scripture of the pool of humanity. So all of humanity is being stirred up here. And four great beasts suddenly were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. And I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was given to it. And then there was this other beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, and devour much meat. And after this I kept looking, and behold, here's another beast, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after that I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, the one that's the most terrifying, dreadful, and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. And it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up from among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth, uttering great boast. So I kept looking until thrones were set up. And then, there were the, then the Ancient of Days took his seat. And his vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. And thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriad upon myriads were standing before him. And the court sat and the books were open. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the fourth beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to a burning fire. 
Look at verse 13. And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given great dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions that were in my mind kept alarming me. A scary dream. And wow, what a dream. I mean, you think of all the imagery that's there, these, basically in summary, these, these four beasts, and then suddenly these four beasts come butted up against the Ancient of Days God, and then suddenly around God comes one from heaven called the Son of Man, and all the dominions of all these kingdoms are suddenly given to Him as judgment occurs. That's the vision. And it alarmed Daniel. And he, he began to wonder, what does all this mean? Because he himself, at this moment, did not possess the ability to interpret the dream that was given to him. But in the midst of this dream, if you can imagine all this taking place before you, kind of virtual reality taking place, there were attendants around. And he came up to one of the attendants to ask what the dream actually meant. And that attendant is found in verse 16. It says, I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking me the exact meaning of all this. And so he told me and he made known to me. And what we're going to learn now is what this scary dream means. Now the person he goes up and talks to is not named at this point, but later on in chapter 8, he is named. It's Gabriel, the great angel. And Gabriel makes appearances through both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Here he is in the Old Testament appearing before Daniel. When you get to the New Testament, he appears before Elizabeth to announce the birth of, uh, to announce the birth of John the Baptist. And then when you get to Mary, he comes and announces the birth of Jesus. So he's a very prominent person this angelic creature. And Daniel grabs him and says, what does the dream mean? This incredible vision that I saw. And what he's going to explain to us, now everyone listen to this, what he's going to explain to us in kind of a summary form is the sweep of human history and how it unfolds and how it all ends. Gabriel begins by telling Daniel in verses 16 and 17 kind of a, a Cliff Notes version of what this vision is all about. And then he explains it in detail by focusing on the fourth beast. Now I want you to remember that fourth beast, the one with the iron teeth and the ten horns. That's where the vision settles. That's the most important part of this vision. So let's look at the summary in verses 17 and 18. He says, These great beasts, Daniel, you want to know what they are? They're four in number, and they represent four kings that will arise from the earth. But after these four kings, I want you to know that the saints of the highest one, that's us, will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all the ages that are to come. Now I want you to know there have been many empires in human history. We know a lot of them. South America, Asia, Africa, a lot of kingdoms. But in the vision, there are only four kingdoms before the coming kingdom of God. And the reason these four kingdoms are important and the reason they come out of the dream is because these four kingdoms relate specifically to the people of God and the nation of Israel. It is these four kingdoms that will have a direct bearing on the life, the prosperity, the discipline, the purity of the people of Israel. And that's why they're selected as being a part of this vision and how human history unfolds. And so these four kingdoms are now going to be identified with the imagery. Now, it's interesting that through the ages, from the Reformation on, as men have read 
the description of those four beasts that I just read you, the lion, the leopard, the bear, those kind of things, it's been interesting that there has been almost universal acceptance of what those four kingdoms are because of the descriptions that are given and what we know about human history. So look back, first of all, in verse 4 and, and just focus for just a second on the lion. Notice that the lion has the two wings on its back and it stands up. Who is the lion? Well, historians almost universally agree that that's a symbol of the nation of Babylon. It's the Babylonian Empire, the one that Daniel was, as he wrote this book, in subjection to. And the reason that's important, because if you went to the city of Babylon, if we could go to it with its beautiful hanging gardens and all that, and walk into its gates, one of the things that we would notice were on all the tiles, these Asher blue tiles, all around the walls of these 300 and, uh, foot high walls of this great city, imprinted on every tile was this lion standing up with the two wings. It was the symbol of Babylon. And Babylon is a very strategic nation in, the light of the, in light of the people of Israel because it was Babylon that was used sovereignly by God to punish Israel for its infidelities and unfaithfulness and to carry Israel into captivity and to purify and redeem that people in that 70-year period of time. Then when you get to verse 5, you see this raised bear. And the raised bear is an apt picture of the Medo-Persian Empire, which was this kind of alliance between two empires, but really it was a lopsided alliance because the Persians were far more dominant in their partnership than the Medes, and that's probably why the bear is raised up on one side. And the three ribs that are in its mouth, oftentimes interpreters see as the three kingdoms that this Medo-Persian empire had to conquer in order to come into full prominence as the world empire. So it had to conquer Egypt, and it did. It had to conquer Lydia, and it did. And finally, it had to conquer Babylon, which was, which was the former reigning champ to become the preeminent world empire. And the Medo-Persian empire is, an, is again an important empire in relationship to the nation Israel, although at this point Daniel is prophesying far out in advance of what he knows. That this Medo-Persian empire will be the empire that will eventually come to the place of releasing the children of Israel back to the land of Israel. They will release them from that captivity that Babylon held them in and allow them to possess the land and rebuild the city under Ezra and Nehemiah and rebuild their temple and begin to worship Jehovah. And then there's this third animal, the leopard with the four wings and the four heads. And of course, that fits well with Greece because the leopard is known for his lightning-like quickness. And Greece was known under Alexander the Great for its lightning-like strikes, conquering the whole world in just a matter of a couple of years under Alexander's great leadership. But when Alexander died, no one was there to take his place. And so the kingdom that he had built, the world he had conquered, split up among his four generals. And that's probably why the leopard has the four heads that it does. And then that brings us lastly to this fourth beast that you see in verses 7 and 8. This great beast that grabbed Daniel's attention really was at the forefront of Daniel's attention. And in verse 19 it says, that Daniel really wanted to know about this fourth beast. And he says, Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others because it was exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. Well, those teeth of iron are kind of a symbol, I think, of the nation that eventually conquered Greece, and that was the Roman Empire. It had an iron rule. Its legions were known as the Iron Legions. And it crushed and subjugated just as this 
dreadful beast is said to do the nations of the world to become the preeminent empire for hundreds and hundreds of years. But then the description of this fourth beast goes on. And it leaves us a little bit in the dark because we begin to understand that this vision of this fourth beast is not just the Roman Empire that we once knew, that you and I look back on like we look back on the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks. But this empire of Rome is unique in this little prophetic dream in that it seems to be an empire that is also at the end of time. It's not just in past time. And that's why we want to focus there for the next few moments. You say, well, how do you know it's an empire at the end of time? Because of those unique ten horns and the little horn that comes up afterwards. Remember when I read the description about this beast? It had the iron teeth, but then at the end he said he also noticed it had ten horns, and then it had a little horn that came up afterwards. These horns, the angel says to Daniel, represents this kingdom that comes at the end of time when the Ancient of Days arrives. When you read verse 20 through 22, it talks about this kingdom and these horns especially. And then notice when you get to verse 22, it says that these horns are around until the Ancient of Days comes and brings judgment to the whole earth and then ushers in His kingdom. So suddenly we see this Roman Empire is not just passed to us, but suddenly we see or get a glimpse of a future Roman Empire that's still yet before us. And let me tell you, that's important for those of us who believe that the Scriptures are in fact the revealed Word of God. You know, historically we know that when Babylon fell, its power, its authority, its dominion was gobbled up by the Medes and the Persians. We know when the Medes and Persians fell, its power was gobbled up by the Greeks. We know when the Greeks fell, its power was gobbled up by Rome. But the question is, for us as historians, just looking at it from a history point of view, who swallowed up Rome? Who was the great world empire that took Rome's place? And you see, the answer is no one. No great world empire took its place. In fact, in this regard, we could say that Rome never fell really to anyone so much as it just simply dissolved. First, by breaking into two parts, east and west, and most of you remember that from your history, but then she disintegrated into a bunch of nondescript little parts over time that became like seeds that just kind of ultimately, at the end of the Dark Ages, flowered again into these small nation-states that we now know of as Spain and Turkey and Germany and Italy and England and so on and so forth. That's the Roman Empire of the old, broken up now in a more decentralized form. But now remember, in Daniel's vision, this beast comes about wearing ten horns. And these ten horns represent a kingdom that's there at the end of time. And I think what that signals for us is that at some point in our future, at some point, what's going to happen is this old Rome, now decentralized, will begin to reassemble itself together again as a new empire, a world-dominating empire. And Daniel goes on and hears from Gabriel that in verse 23, that this fourth beast will one day become a fourth kingdom on earth which will be different from all the other kingdoms of the earth and it will devour the whole earth and one day it will tread it down and one day it will crush it. That's the future. 
You know, John the Apostle saw this same vision, this same beast, 650 years after Daniel saw it. He describes the beast a little more fully. It doesn't just mention the iron teeth, you know, and the ten horns, but what he mentions, he says in Revelation 13, that this beast, when it came up out of the sea, it looked like it had a body like a leopard, it had feet like those of a bear, it had a mouth like a lion, it had seven heads, and then it had, on top of that, the ten horns. It looked something like this. So here's this, this beast, this ferocious beast. But in both John's description and in Daniel's description, the thing they no kept noticing most were the ten horns and then the little horn that came afterwards. Now what does that refer to? Well, let's start first of all with the ten horns on the top. Those ten horns, Daniel learns in verse 24 as the angel speaks to them, are ten kings. Notice in verse 24 it says, as for the ten horns, Gabriel says, it means that out of this beast, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. Ten kings, ten leaders who will somehow rise up out of this beast and join their empires or their kingdoms or their nations, whatever they are at that point in time, together, much like you see happening within Europe with the common market kind of reassembling. This new Euro state. This beast, at least the first phase of this beast, evidently is kind of a federation of empires, a federation of nations. And each king, therefore, must give up a certain measure of his power and his control and his authority in order to form the alliance. But at the same time, each king gets to maintain a certain measure of power and control and authority. We can't turn back there, but in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and his dream mentions these same ten features of this kingdom. And he calls it a kingdom of iron and clay. It's loosely connected, but each individual part is a part of iron. Ten nations joined together. And what our text tells us in this dream about our future, planet Earth's future, as things move forward to God's conclusion, as these ten nations or ten empires assemble together, they will assemble together in an alliance that will be a kingdom so strong it will be unlike anything the earth has ever seen. In fact, as verse 23 says, they will control the whole earth and anyone who opposes them, like the old Rome that we know about, they will crush and trample those people under. That's the empire for a time. But then remember the little horn? The little horn that comes up after the ten horns? What the angel now goes on to say is that Something else happens after this kingdom is formed through this alliance. When this eleventh horn arises, evidently there's a power struggle of some sort. And this little horn takes control over the whole kingdom. At least that's what the angel says. Look at verse 24 again. It says there will be these ten kings will arise, and then, the Gabriel says, and another, this little horn, will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and he will subdue three kings. Now I call him the little bighorn. And the reason I call him the little bighorn is because in verse 8 of this chapter, he was said to be very small. But verse 20 of Daniel chapter 7 says he appears very great because of his ability to be boastful and to speak arrogantly and boldly. You know, when you have people who have great charisma and can spin words really well, they always appear much bigger than they really are, don't they? And this person is that in a supreme form. And because of that, he uses that 
boastfulness, he uses that sense of charisma to evidently unseat three of the kings. It says there he pulls them out from the roots and subdues the rest. And in doing this, this little bighorn transforms what was once a federation that these nations had uh, drawn themselves together with into an absolute monarchy. With the coup among these leaders, this loosely joined federation collapses into a centralized kingdom of a central despot. And all of a sudden, Earth, planet Earth in the future, realizes that Rome has revived itself and it has its last Caesar to lead it. Now this Caesar will not be one who will be content just to rule. Eventually in this world rulership, he will be moved by his own egotism to be worshipped. And notice when you get to verse 25, you get a hint of that. It says, and he will speak out against the Most High. Other places in Scripture, for instance in 2 Timothy, says that he will take his seat in the holy place and make himself out to be God. And as he now moves to this kind of adulation of worship, those people, maybe even believers who had first followed after him, thinking he was the one that was going to bring peace to the world, and by the way, later we'll find out that that's exactly how he ascends to his uh, throne of power, promising a world out of control peace. But suddenly as he's in this place of adulation, believers, the holy people of Israel, begin to pull back, which then unleashes his wrath on them. Notice in verse 21, it even tells us that. It says, as Daniel was looking, it says he saw the horn, and the horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. There'll come a day, again, where a kingdom will be used to purify the people of God. That's the point. There's going to come another day where that takes place. And how that happens, we can only speculate. Although Scripture from time to time gives us little hints. When John talks about the beast in the book of Revelation, he talks about this beast in terms of persecuting Christians through economic boycott, withholding food, not allowing them to buy or sell. He talks about them being rounded up and persecuted, some martyred. In our text, it talks about wearing them down. It talks about the brute force. In verse 25, it mentions that uh, he'll have the ability to make alterations in times and even in the law. As the sole ruler, he can change the law to foot, fit whatever ends he has in mind. And he'll do that. And believers will suffer under that. It says at the end of verse 25, for a time, for times, and a half time. Those are terms that are used in the Old Testament referring to a year, time, when it's used in the dual in Hebrew, it refers to two years, times, and a half time. So it gives us the time. For three and a half years, this monarch, this Caesar, this despot, will control the world and use it to his own ends, and he will persecute the people of God. But one thing he won't do, because the Scripture tells us this, he will not be able to eradicate them. But God will use that persecution to purify and strengthen God's saints those who are pseudo-believers will fall away quickly, but those who are true believers will only become more resolute with even greater radical resolve to serve God. And when God's purposes for this dreadful time are fulfilled, then the Scripture says in this beast that it will be time for the beast to end. It will be time for that reign to be over, and with that ending of a reign, 
this beast will come crashing down with all its power and authority and the end will come. Look at verse 26. He says, but the court... Remember the court that we saw earlier in the text back in the earlier verses when the Ancient of Days sat down and the books were open? That's the book of a court. That's symbolizing the time of the end. And when that court sits with the Ancient of Days and the coming of the Son of Man, they will sit for judgment and the dominion of this beast will be taken away and he will be annihilated and destroyed forever. All the glory, all the power, all the kingdoms that he possessed will suddenly be brought to nothingness. But now notice how the dream ends. Because suddenly all of this that man sought after, all this greatness, all this supremacy, all this glory and honor, it's so interesting that as man, because this is what this text is helping us understand, that man in his greatest and most powerful form, the ultimate humanness, is destroyed. But those who take a different route, who subjugate themselves to a different kind of kingdom, at the end, all that the first man sought after and didn't get, those who humble themselves do get. Notice verse 27. It says, Then the sovereignty at the end of time, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heavens will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. And His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey Him. And at this point, for me, Daniel, the revelation ended. <laughs> wow, what a dream. What an incredible dream. Except it's more than a dream. It's the way history will unfold and end. And I mean, it's an incredible thing to know that when Daniel was speaking these words, he was under the sub subjugation of Nebuchadnezzar in a nation called Babylon. But as he looked into the future, sometimes hundreds of years and sometimes thousands of years, he said, four kingdoms. Four kingdoms. And then... The end will come. I want you to know that's an incredible dream, but for us this morning, I have one very practical application that you can take with you, and that's this. This is insider information. If it's true, and I believe with all my heart that it's true, it's insider information. Because now what we've been told is that this planet is spinning towards a predetermined conclusion under the authority of a sovereign God with specific purposes in mind. We know how it ends. And we know it's new beginning. If some of you have ever read the book by Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Effective People, you'll notice that one of his habits is begin with the end in mind. <laughs> and you know what the Scripture gives us through this great gift called prophecy is the end. Now the question is, will you live with the end in mind? That's the key challenge. Well, with this it says the prophecy ended. And I want you to know in the coming weeks, this little sketch of human history now will be fleshed out in a more colorful, full way as we move through the rest of the prophecies of the book of Daniel in chapters 8-12. through Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.